This is Fair and Square, a podcast from Hudson Sandler. Hello and welcome to episode two of the Fair and Square podcast from Hudson Sandler. I'm Adam Batstone and today we're going to talk about ESG, or for the benefit of the uninitiated, that's environment, social and governance three considerations which are increasingly important for businesses and investors alike. I'm very pleased to be joined today by Vladimir Zalushki, who is Head of Communications and Investor Relations for Severstal, one of Russia's biggest steelmakers. Also with me today is Rupert Krefting, Head of Corporate Finance and Stewardship at M&G Investors, and also Rebecca Gudgeon, a partner with Hudson Sandler, who specialises on advising clients on the communication of ESG issues. So welcome one and all to the Fair and Square podcast. So Vladimir, I'm going to start with you, if I may, and ask you to explain a slightly unusual situation which uh, happened recently, where I believe Severstal received a letter from the Church of England. Indeed, we were quite surprised to receive that, even though later we understood the reason. So we are a resources company, and Church of England, after the accident which happened uh, earlier this year in Brazil, with a very big tailings dump, uh, which broke and killed 300 people in Brazil was a very big disaster. So they formed a group of investors and representing them, they started sending letters to resources companies around the world, including us, asking to explain what's their dams with tailings, how those facilities are treated, and in what shape and form. So we put up a presentation signed by the CEO and the board, as was required by the Church of England, sent them, and put it on our website. And then later, at a, via website, we understood that there is a tracking the, all the status of the company's replies to the um, uh, letters of the Church of England. And we were in the green zone, those who replied. Unfortunately, not that many companies replied by that date. So the Church of England, as an investor, and also acting on behalf of other investors, was concerned to find out from Severstal and other businesses like yourselves what you were doing in relation to these kind of issues. Absolutely. But interestingly, you would be surprised that was not the only contact with the Church of England. It continued later. We had our Capital Markets Day yesterday here in London, an annual event with the management coming here to explain the investors' the strategy. And all the time we have online casting. And later we understand the list of the guests who subscribed to this translation. So Church of England was among those watching us online. So checking up on you. Yes. <laughs> that was just one example, admittedly a big example, and that was a notorious incident, what happened in Brazil. But Rupert, if I can turn to you, this whole question around ESG, environment, social and governance, they're none of them new issues. What is your impression of how they are changing the way people make investment decisions? So the way that we see um, ESG, we're active um, fund managers and we actively engage with our investee companies and we vote. And we've been doing that for a long period of time. I think what we're trying to do on the ESG side is just to widen the lens. So we're just making sure that the fund managers are aware of all of the risks and opportunities on the environmental and social side. So be it climate change, pollution, waste... Um, plastics um, or health and safety. So make sure that they're just fully aware of all of these non-financial issues. And do you see in your work 
a shift whereby these issues, the sort of issues which aren't on the balance sheet, are becoming more important in terms of the way businesses are managed. Definitely. I mean, I think we, we, we as long-term investors need to consider whether the companies we're investing in are sustainable. And in order to be able to determine whether a company is sustainable or not, you've got to be able to take into account all of the long-term factors that could potentially affect that company. And, uh, you know, things like climate change and reputation risk from things like cybersecurity or, or bad behaviour, these are very important factors that you need to take into account because they're not necessarily going to happen tomorrow, but you've got to be thinking 5, 10 or 15, 15 years out. And Rebecca, obviously as issues which, as Rupert said, are not on the balance sheet but are important nonetheless to the way businesses conducted a lot of this is about communications isn't it and reassuring investors reassuring the wider public that the business is being run responsibly what is your perception in terms of your role Hudson Sandler how businesses are treating these issues I think that there's a lot of information that companies um, that companies do need to put across to all of their stakeholders. So that isn't just the investment community. It's their customers, it's the regulators, it's their peers, it's NGOs, it's civil society as a whole. Some of that can be contained in sustainability reports. But I think people are looking now for companies to be making commitments to change in the future, to recognise where they need to go, to demonstrate they're a long-term sustainable business to reinforce their investment position um, and to demonstrate they are going to be able to respond to all of the needs in the future. So we're doing a lot of work with clients at the moment, which looks kind of 10, 15, 20, 30 years out about the industry sector they're in, the likely regulation that's going to impact that industry, and also kind of consumer attitudes and the role that they play in the supply chain as well. All of those things need to come together and um, an organisation needs to be able to demonstrate they have a credible plan to address the future issues that, are, that they're going to be facing. So for me, one of the most important things you, you said there is about demonstrating because my impression is it's easy to make claims. Oh, yeah. It's very hard sometimes to back those up in, with reality. And as people could become more sophisticated in the way they focus on these issues, uh, they're more adept at identifying those who just make claims and those who are actually uh, walking the walk. Uh, that's absolutely at the heart of the whole thing. And I think the world in general is now very sensitive to, to all things greenwash. As a corporate, um, you can you can ruin your reputation instantly by making a claim for something that you cannot back up in reality. And I think one of the things that a lot of companies, when they when they first come to us, they start talking to their advisors, worry about is they know they're in a sector that's perhaps challenged in terms of its environmental impact. Um, it might be you know it might be one of the mining sectors, it might be oil and gas, it might be you know, chemical production. These are all sectors, aviation, these are all sectors that have a reputation for having a negative impact on the environment. That doesn't mean that they can't speak now, but what they've got to do is recognise that they're in a challenged sector, recognise that perhaps they are not, even individually as companies, they are not where they need to be, and demonstrate their commitment to putting things right in the future. I don't think there are any reputational negatives about saying, holding your hands up and saying, we're not there yet, this is what we're going to do to get there. People are looking for, people are looking for, for future behaviours now. With that in mind, Vladimir, just Severstal, your, your own business, by nature, it's a messy business. As in making steel is always going to create 
mess. There's, there's no two ways around it. So what, when, when you had that communication from the Church of England, bearing in mind what uh, Rebecca and Rupert have been saying, what has your business done to actually concretely address these issues? Right. So I will tell one thing about steel, which is very important to bear in mind, and which gives it a lot of hope for future use, even in 50 years from now. Steel is 100% recyclable. You can use it unlimited number of times because you can melt it again. You can take it as a, in the form of scrap from cars, from buildings, versus other raw materials like concrete. For instance, it's very difficult to disassemble a concrete house and then to use it somehow. Steel is different. So that's why when we are part of the World Steel Association and specifically the um, uh, committee which is uh, on sustainability, and we see a lot of energy from understanding that and trying to explain to different audiences. So uh, we have set publicly stated goals for water consumption, for reduction of waste uh, and uh, emissions. We are now in the process of developing our CO2 goal. We were one of the first companies to join the World Steel Association project called Step Up, which helps to identify companies a better way to reduce their carbon um, dioxide emissions. So hopefully in the coming years we will set a goal. Interestingly, when we make a global benchmarking versus other steel companies, we are already much better than the global average okay, at okay. the moment. And Rupert, on that point about you know, whether you, how you can prove and demonstrate that you actually are kind of compliant and it's not just greenwash, as uh, Rebecca said. When you have a fund which is billed as an ESG fund, what are the kind of criteria which qualify businesses to be part of that fund? What do, you, what do they have to prove? So we've got two types of um, ESG funds at M&G. We've got a, a range of ESG labelled funds, which specifically are sold as ESG funds. And at the same time, we're trying to integrate ESG into all of our investment processes across all of listed equity and fixed income. But just going back to the ESG uh, range of funds, the minimum criteria are they, they can't have a red flag on the global compact list. So that's the list of uh, human rights violations, bribery, corruption, the principles set by the United Nations. Um, in addition to that, they have to have various sector exclusions. So things like controversial weapons, um, adult entertainment, gambling, tobacco are just a few of the examples where they Taboo. are specifically yeah. excluded. But beyond that, it's up to the mandate of the specific fund to set um, additional criteria with that. But what we wanted to do was just to generate a certain minimum bar in order to be able to sell it as, a, as an MNG ESG fund. Okay. And Rebecca, in your work around the sort of communicating these stories and dealing with journalists who are interested in these, in these issues, have you seen a shift where it's no longer inquiries from just financial and business journalists who are interested in what's on the balance sheet, but a, a wider range of commentators who will be focusing on clients because of their conduct more broadly? Uh, entirely. In the last 10 years, I have dealt with Greenpeace over a very wide range of different clients and different topics. And I think the rise of the NGO is actually quite interesting in the role that they play because NGOs appeal directly to consumers. They make very simple arguments out of very complex situations. You know, something's, it's black and white, something's good or bad. They want something to stop. Of course, the response to that is very grey and complex and there are lots and lots of reasons why, you know, 
things just can't be switched and it's not that binary argument, good and bad. But what NGOs have done is they've raised issues in the public consciousness. So whereas before it might have been, you know, journalists who had a real focus on the environmental issues or on financial, you know, financial reporters, now it is um, consumer journalists, social affairs journalists, it's across the board. And it's not just journalists. We see companies being um, being approached for, for commentary directly from customers, from their from their customers as well, if they play a role in a supply chain. We work for a very well-known consumer FMCG brand here in the, in the UK, and it's in the seafood industry. They faced a very significant attack by Greenpeace because Greenpeace knew that if they could get this large, large, large global company to change the way it engaged with um, vessel operators and the kind of the, the, the fishers of the world it would actually change the entire industry. So I think you're seeing pressure from all sorts of angles and the, the journalist inquiries are actually reflecting that now as well. Vladimir, I'm curious to find out a little more from you about how you would characterise the debate in Russia compared with the UK or other parts of the European Union. Russia maybe has a poor reputation, I would say, in, in some of these issues, but do you think this is a... This is changing or, or is that wrong? Do you think Russia is actually quite good in, re, in regards to applying ESG yeah, standards? Yeah, it's an interesting angle. So uh, on the one hand, uh, Russia does, we have to admit, unfortunate reputation at the moment due to maybe some legacy issues, maybe because Russia is not doing enough to communicate what is done. It's just achievement. There are some definitely Russian regulation, environmental things is uh, in some aspects is even in line with European or US legislation. So it's quite, quite strict, which we have to comply. Additionally, Russian private companies, including ours and other companies we know in different sectors, they're taking additional responsibilities. I mean, understanding that they are part of the global context and uh, they have clients around the world and they have investors around the world. So that's why we are taking additional responsibilities from time to time. Uh, in terms of the public behavior, we now understand, and I fully agree with Rebecca, that the way NGOs are expanding and the way uh, civil society is developing both in Russia and around the world, and generational changes happen, and we understand the newer generation coming, they are much more requiring, there is less trust to corporations and the governments around the world, and these people will be electing new politicians in many years from now, and environmental things, sustainability is on their top priorities at moment so we need to be ready as a corporation and politicians to meet that last year the biggest topic in environmental things was plastic problem around the world those plastic oceans so you'd be surprised that even in russia that has been one of the biggest topics discussed both in the media and in the social media so that's why probably we should forget about the time when some countries were quite isolated and not integrated into the global agenda. So Russia is absolutely, specifically in the big cities, sharing the global agenda, understands the risk, and younger population, they are requiring government and corporations to do something to change the situation with their CO2 emissions or waste management and other stuff. So I would not a big difference at the moment. Just the scale is smaller, maybe, but at the moment it's changing. Okay, and Rupert Vladimir mentioned plastic there. You talked earlier about almost being able to isolate 
a moment in the UK, certainly about 18 months ago, with the broadcast of the BBC Blue Planet series as being a pivotal moment. People have been talking about ESG for, for a long time, but I, I really sense that since that moment when the Blue Planet was broadcast and plastics came up the agenda, um, you know, it really has taken off. I mean, I'm, I'm reading articles in the newspaper every day now about climate change. We've had, obviously, the Extinction Rebellion protests on the streets. I think everybody's becoming very aware of all of these issues, which, which is great because we need to be talking about them. We, we now talk about climate change in every single meeting we have with companies, um, regardless of whether they're financial services or steel manufacturers or, or whatever sector they're in, because I think it's really important, especially on the financial services sector, so whether you're a, uh, an insurance company, an investor or a lender, you've got to be putting pressure on the companies that you're dealing with to do their bit and change their behaviour. Because unless we all do this together, we're not going to be able to make uh, any any difference. Just on that point about putting pressure, what what do you see as being the kind of balance between the push and the pull? So to what degree are you seeing kind of corporates actually you know, making a difference and, and, and wanting to kind of set the agenda? Or are they still, do you think, being influenced by that wider stakeholder audience? I think it slightly depends where you sit on the chain. So the financial services are getting lent on very heavily by the regulators, so both by the FCA and the PRA. They're leaning on uh, investors and banks to stress test their assets, uh, specifically in relation to climate change. But also we're now seeing um, suppliers being asked a lot more detailed information from their own customers about what their environmental impact was. I went to a a workshop um, a couple of days ago with the cement manufacturers and they said they have to now produce 40 or 50 page detailed documents on their environmental impact for their customers which is far more detailed than than investors are asking so i think it's coming from from all directions at the moment which has got to be a good thing but one of the big things that we're pushing for is for scope 3 emissions from all companies so that will encompass all of the emissions from both your suppliers and from your customers. And I think when we get to the day that everybody is reporting scope for emissions, we can really work out where where the problems are and, and which, which way we need to push the pressure. Rebecca, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of headlines around the government's pledge for this country to become carbon neutral by 2050. Yeah. Was that a, a, a kind of turning point in terms of the way your clients were looking at these issues, or do you think they're ahead of government? I think they're ahead of government. I think government's definitely trailing where the corporates are at the moment. Um, and I think actually what's interesting in the last in the last few years is you've seen the whole kind of competitive environment within a sector changing slightly. So whereas before, peers within a, within a sector wouldn't necessarily come together and share information, share technology, share thinking, share kind of visions for the future because that was very much their, their USP. What we're seeing now is a lot of companies actually very willing to come together and to address some of the, particularly the environmental issues, in an industry sort of environment. At UN Climate Week in, uh, um, in New York in September, the UN asked the World Economic Forum to set up the Mission Possible platform, which looks at seven or eight of the world's hardest to abate areas or sectors, which are the ones with the largest carbon emissions that have been the hardest to actually to actually mitigate. So there are seven or eight programmes running under the Mission Possible platform, and all of those are bringing together 
industry competitors to actually look at how they can work together, how they can share technologies, they can share research, they can share R&D to actually apply some of the best practice to clean up the entire industry. What that means is what would have been kind of unique to one company now starts to become an industry solution. So how do, I think the new question is how do companies start to define themselves within that kind of overall industry approach? How are they getting on with that, do you think, that, 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 that question of how do you define yourself? I think at the moment that's, that's still being worked through. It is getting harder to define what's unique about your company. That's where the relationships that the companies have with, the, with their own supply chain, with their, with their own publics becomes more important. And brand, actually what a brand stands for is actually going to become more important so you can start to define yourself in that way rather than just on your environmental performance. Vladimir, your role encompasses communications. How much of your time is spent communicating issues around ESG compared with maybe a few years ago? So I joined the company nine years ago as head of investor relations and then several years later we unified all the sorts of communications into one department which I'm running at the moment so external internal communication social media and investor relations and I think that's a very big advantage for a company to have consistency of the messages including in the ESG area. So we historically have been having ESG function in invest relations, and we didn't have a dedicated person several years ago. So then we understood the, the volume of communication uh, with investors and rating agencies is growing so rapidly, and to meet up with the quality requirements and sometimes a questionnaire for this non-financial information, they're very, very long, so you can't, like with financial information, have one set of data which you provide everyone, you know? So every questionnaire is very unique, very different. One day you get a question on uh, human resources practices and training. The other day people want to understand your self-sufficiency and energy and the way you produce it, you know? So it's very, very unique. Um, you create a database, but however, it's still not enough. You are replenishing it every day. You're adding something. So we hired a person from uh, ex big four company, uh, a lady who has been dealing with sustainable reporting. She joined our company a couple of years ago and her job was to build a dedicated relation with with rating agencies in investors. And that worked really well. So that's why we got some improvement in different ratings. We started disclosing a lot more. We got much higher profile at the board. Our health and safety committee at the board every quarter reviews also our SG performance. And uh, we are getting perception studies from investors. And, and the board is happy with this. They're happy to see this kind of trend. Absolutely. Of being they understand the risk. They understand the world is changing and they're taken very seriously. So we announced last year in U5 year strategy which has ESG embedded in our corporate strategy. So that's why all decisions taken going forward, even the investment decisions, will be viewed through the lens of ESG. Rupert, we've talked quite a lot about environment in relation to this ESG question. Do you see the E, the S and the G as being kind of equal players or is environment the thing which has become the kind of sexy issue at the moment or are they all equally important? Well, I, I see um, governance being at the heart of everything, regardless of whether it's the E, the S or the G, because whenever we look at the, the issues in the, in the E or the S, the first thing we look at is what is the governance wrapped around that issue, whether it's climate change, diversity, cybersecurity, who is responsible, what expertise have you got on the board, uh, what KPIs are you using, is it 
built into the metrics for incentivization because in our view it's if you're prepared to go out there with a target then you've got to be able to link that to your remuneration otherwise it's it's not real so i think g is at, at the heart of it um the way that we look at esgs we look at it uh, sector by sector so we use the sasb framework sustainable accounting standards board and they set out by sector what they think the material esg issues are so we've built a data bank of questions uh, by sitting down with our sector analysts to work out what the key ESG issues are by sector, and then we built up a, a list of questions for, for each of those. So our, our view on ESG will vary by sector and by company. So we're trying to work out what is the most relevant issue for that company. And uh, Rebecca, how do you think clients should or can influence what is being said via social media channels on these issues? I mean, do they have they lost control of that, or can they keep control? They can't. I, I think, I think the world has changed. For corporates to think they can control that is ridiculous because um, the issues are growing. Consumers are becoming, particularly in the UK, and we've done quite a bit of research about this. The UK is particularly, as a consumer base, particularly engaged. Uh, consumers are definitely wanting to have their say and are definitely holding corporates and companies and you know suppliers of FMCG goods that they're buying every day in supermarkets they're holding them to account and they are driving improve or trying to drive improved behaviors what you can do as a corporate is set out your stall so that every consumer or every NGO or every investor or every fund manager or every journalist has access to the information, transparent information that demonstrates where you are now and where you're going to go and that you are working in collaboration with the, the wider industry to address some of these problems and that you have the right certification in place and that you're holding the certification boards to account. So I think there are things that corporates need to be doing to demonstrate they are moving in the right direction and that will that will influence some of that social media commentary. But the idea that you can stop it is completely wrong. And actually, I don't think anyone should try and stop it because that is how that's how society is going to improve. At the end of the day, if a company is behaving in the right way and doing the right thing with the right behaviours, the right culture, then they shouldn't be afraid of, uh, they, they should be transparent and they shouldn't be afraid of, of, of social media because I think social media, unless in, in, in it's fraudulent, is just trying to pick up where, where things are going wrong. So what, what we've described, I think, or what we've touched on, I hope, is an increasingly complex world where not only doing business is tough, but doing business within a increasingly tough framework as laid down by ESG standards and then talking about it in a world where the, the traditional channels to communicate are changing equally rapidly. So I'd like to say thanks very much indeed to my guests, Vladimir Zalushki, Rupert Crefting, and Rebecca Gudgeon. Uh, you can find out much more details about our guests and notes on this podcast via the website. And please follow us on Twitter as well, at Hudson Sandler. For now, thank you very much. To find out more about Hudson Sandler, our team, our culture and our thinking, visit our website, hudsonsandler.com.